You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it was UFC 266 weekend. Uh, really a spectacular fight card, kind of from start yep. to finish, uh, despite the fact that you had two fights at the top of the card that the champions were supposed to win, and they both did win. Alexander Volkanovsky and Valentina Shevchenko both emerged with successful title defenses. Robbie Lawler uh, trumped Nick Diaz. And really, uh, uh, just a slew of interesting stoppages, interesting fights throughout the night. Uh, this was about as far away from just some fights as you can get in today's UFC environment, what with two titles on the line and then the, the Lawler Diaz fight uh, and a, a, you know, a handful of recognizable people throughout the entire card here. And we are going to talk about all of that on this show. Uh, first, though, we didn't think we were going to be talking about this. We didn't know we were going to be talking about this last week. Uh, but we felt compelled to spend some time here at the beginning of the show talking about it because uh, Jonathan Dwight Jones went down to Las Vegas over the weekend, the pay-per-view weekend, also a UFC Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Jones was going in the hall with uh, Alexander Gustafson into the fight wing for their uh, fight. And the former light heavyweight champion of the world, was arrested early, uh, was it early Friday in Vegas? Early Friday morning, um, about 5 a.m. This news broke on Friday. So he was up early. Yeah, I was going to so He set the alarm. I was going to say, early, this, got arrested. this arrest does not give the impression that Jones got a good night's sleep, got up early to go to the gym, and just got himself in a mishap on the way to uh, do the attack ropes down at the P.I., uh, this news broke on Friday afternoon, literally at the moment that I pushed the publish button to post the Friday Power Hour. You and I recorded an entire Power Hour, and as soon as it went live, this this news hit the wire. So we have have not had a, an opportunity to discuss it yet. And frankly, even now, with the weekend in between it, the details are pretty scarce in terms of what John Jones has actually been arrested for what he's been accused of doing here. We know that he has been, he was booked uh, for misdemeanor battery, domestic violence, as well as injuring and tampering with a vehicle. He posted bail. Uh, he is expected to make a court appearance on October 26th, which will be this according to Mark Raimondi from ESPN, quote, a status check on the filing of a potential criminal complaint against him. Uh, there was also a court happening or a judge uh, found that there was probable cause for John Jones to be arrested and uh, that the defendant's biological specimen, meaning his DNA, will be submitted to the appropriate forensic laboratory for genetic marker analysis. Again, from Mark Ramondi at ESPN. So we don't we don't have a lot of details here, but despite the fact that this domestic violence charge is a misdemeanor, uh, anytime you start talking domestic violence, that just doesn't sound good. This, this in fact, 
uh, seems to be one of the more, or could be, I guess, let's say potentially, since we don't actually have have too many details, but could be one of the more potentially uh, damaging or serious run-ins with the law that John Jones has had, depending on how this stuff plays out. It is a weird sort of contrast in just phrases to say misdemeanor domestic battery and then felony vehicle tampering. Yeah. That's that's some America in 2021 bullshit for you. Also, I want you to look at my surprised face when I hear that some aspect of John Jones's latest arrest involves an automobile. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's how shocked I am that we find ourselves back here. John Jones and to go to a different city, get arrested for something somehow involving some kind of car. It just it never fails. You see Dana White's comments on this. Yeah, he's he's out here saying it's not even shocking anymore. White said when we bring him here, it's almost expected. Can't even get him into Las Vegas for less than 12 hours to induct him into the Hall of Fame. It's a problem. The guy's got a lot of demons, man. A lot of demons. The way Dana White sees this story playing out, Las Vegas is sort of itself a character in the story. That it's it's Vegas. Some guys can't handle Vegas, is what Dana White's saying. I don't know about that explanation, because it seems like John Jones has proven an ability to get himself arrested kind of wherever he happens to be. Yeah. Known to the Albuquerque police is John Jones at this point. So I, I don't know if it's that you bring him to Las Vegas, he can't handle it. He goes crazy down there drinking the, you know, the the free Michelob Ultras they'll they'll bring you while you're playing video poker. I don't know if it's that, Chad. Yeah. And yet, we just heard the guy showing up, talking to media at the Hall of Fame ceremony stuff, saying, "Hey, this fight is going to happen." We were talking about it on the Power Hour that, or in the, the the Power Rankings, especially that he sounded a more optimistic note on how we might get this deal done to have a fight against Francis Ngannou if he, you know, is still the champion after, was it, was it Serial Game? Yeah, Serial Game. he was going to fight? Okay. And we were going, okay, maybe John Jones didn't get exactly what he was hoping for, but maybe he got something good enough that we're actually going to see that fight. We're going to move forward. Maybe we haven't seen the last of John Jones in the UFC after all. And then this happens just hours later. And it seems like... You know, at this point, I guess you can't expect that Dana White's going to show up and really try too hard to to shield John Jones from any criticism after anything that's gone on between them, between him and the UFC, all that stuff. But just sort of throwing up his hands and being like, hey, what are you going to do? And meanwhile, the machine plugs right along. Yeah. What, what does this do for your concept of where John Jones is at just as a person and where his fight career might be headed? I mean... Oh, are we going to mess around one of these days and get John Jones in an actual prison sentence and then that's it? We just don't see him again? Well, it does seem like sort of classic John Jones to show his face on UFC programming for the first time in a long time. And as you said, like sound a more optimistic tone about his return to the cage. It had been, frankly, a long time since we had heard John Jones say things like that up until his appearance in front of the media during this Hall of Fame thing. It had sounded like he was content to sit out for a long time and and not return and not fight until the deal was right. The money was right in order for him to take on the winner of uh, Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gaon. 
and so it just seems like a classic John Jones move to go from this kind of like high, a teasing high of being like, yeah, I'm expecting to fight early in 2022 and like I'm going to fight the winner of Francis Ngannou and this fellow named Serial Gain. Uh, Mm -hmm. To go from that to hours later being arrested, it's, it's almost like I don't even know what to say about the guy at this point, except that it seems like his legacy has been cemented, both for better and for worse. Like, this latest arrest, and again, since we don't really know anything about it, I don't really want to speculate about what happened, but uh, we've come we've come so far with John Jones that even the notion of him being arrested in Vegas is is we're all going to assume the worst because of the things that have happened in the past with John Jones. And that number two, just like this latest arrest, there's no way at this point this guy doesn't go down in the uh, annals of MMA history as like one of the most talented fighters that we have ever seen in the cage and just an absolute fucking train wreck outside of it. Like that, put that in the book because there is no way to get away from that at this point if you were John Jones. And there probably wasn't any way to get away from it before this incident. But this one just kind of like, I don't know what you do, man, besides throw your hands up and just be like, well, shit, like, you know, I don't oftentimes agree with Dana White and I kind of, um, I bristle a little bit at his tone here that he's just sort of like, Dana White doesn't seem to think this is a big deal at all. He's just sort of like, well, what are you going to do is John Jones. Every time he leaves the house, basically he's going to get in trouble. But I do kind of both empathize and agree with him just kind of saying, it's not even shocking at this point. It's just like, this is the, yeah. this is the trajectory of John Jones's life. This is the pattern that he has set before. And it just seems to happen over and over again. And there's just no, there's no sign that he will ever deviate from that. The man is 34 years old at this point, too, too old, frankly, Ben folks to be running around all night in Vegas. But it just seems like this is, this is who he is. And this will, this will continue to happen until he does something serious enough to land himself in prison. But in answer to the, I guess the second part of your question, I don't expect uh, anything to come between the UFC and putting on fights that it thinks will make money for it. Unless, as you said, John Jones is just physically not available because he is in a prison cell somewhere. Well, and maybe that's part of how this keeps happening though, is that he has thus far been shielded from any really serious consequences. It's been pan fines, community service, uh, suspensions from the UFC, things like that. But he keeps managing to avoid what other people, the consequences that other people would have experienced by now uh, if they were doing the same kind of stuff that John Jones has been doing. And that can only go on for so long, though. And you're right, though, that it's just frustrating at this point more than surprising Because you look at him and you go, there is no one, it seems, who can fuck with you, except for you. And you do it better than anybody. You you get in your own way better than anybody has ever done it. And it's kind of amazing. I was watching a a video that somebody was reposting in the light of this, where at like a press conference and there's a fan Q&A portion. And the guy gets up and he's asking me, he's like, you know, look... I think you're an inspiration. You're a great fighter. I love following your career. But man, it is hard to be your fan. And it was said like good-naturedly. And John Jones seemed to take it good-naturedly. But also true, man. Yeah. 
Like, it is hard to to keep watching this stuff happen over and over again and just being like, you could be anything. You, you, you got the whole world in the palm of your hand, and, and this is what you choose to do with it. And remember, like, this guy just got off probation. It was March of 2020, the last time that we heard that John Jones had had a run-in with the law. Again, I believe early in the morning, right? He was, like, rolling around Albuquerque, and maybe he shot his gun off out the window of a car or something like that. He had been on one year of supervised probation from that, which if you can do the math would have just elapsed what, four or five months ago. Uh, and here he is again now getting arrested in Las Vegas. It's just like a, a, an unending pattern. And I don't, I don't know what to say about it except that like uh, John, I'm way past the point where I'm going to try try to stick up for John Jones or believe John Jones when he says anything or, try to make excuses for John Jones. He's just a complete train wreck, just a complete and utter train wreck in his personal life. And it doesn't seem like there's, there is any sign of it slowing down or stopping. Uh, It's just amazing to me that we didn't hear that. He didn't, he managed to keep himself out of trouble for that, like a year and a half. And then the first time he shows back up on some UFC content, he gets arrested mere hours later I don't even understand what could possibly be going through his head. Like I just made my first, I got to put it in the hall of fame without Alexander Gustafson. I made my first appearance in a long time on, in front of the media with the UFC. And now we assume I'm just going to go up, just go fucking crazy and party and eventually and get arrested. This is it's, it's, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm kind of flabbergasted by it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that and we'll see what happens with it. Uh, <laughs> reminder, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and your podcast libraries. And if you like what you hear on this show, you should check us out over on the Patreon. You can hit us up patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks and I are over there with three additional podcasts every single week. Uh, we've got the Wednesday live chat, the Friday power hour, and of course, the Thursday movie club. We are off this week from the movie club, having just wrapped up uh, hockey movie month. And then we're going to come back in early October with uh, something new, a new look, I think, for the movie club. But with uh, hockey season about to to kick off, our beloved uh, Seattle Kraken about to start their inaugural season. So we're going to give the movie club a slightly different look and feel, I think, maybe something that'll give us a little bit more uh, freedom to do some different stuff with that particular show and that that particular platform. So check that out over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We got music this week from Stockholm-based producer Simeo, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Al- Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can find more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O in Simeo. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, I demand an inquiry to determine if Alexander Volkanovsky even has a neck, man. And in round number two, that's the kind of shit I like to do, said Robbie Lawler after a fight where he and Nick Diaz combined to throw seven million strikes. You know what? I believe him. And in round number three, just more total domination from Valentina Shevchenko, an absolute masterclass 
against Lauren Murphy. So all of that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's squeeze in a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. All right. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from a noted novelist, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, good to hear from him. One of the giants, the titans of American fiction. He's going to check in from beyond the grave here. Uh, He writes, this pay-per-view was one of those, quote-unquote, occasionally wonderful moments in MMA. Uh, From Dacus's incredible double slobber knocker to Marab, uh, there are no words, Devashvili, uh, not to mention Volkanovsky's outrageous demonstration that his brain does not, in fact, require oxygen. What a night. No real question here. Just hoping y'all can send some respect to the outrageously entertaining fights all over the card. And we will, in fact, Ben, folks. We're going to talk about... uh, the top three fights of the night coming up uh, during the rounds, the second half of this show. But here's how you know that some crazy shit happened at UFC 266. And that is that number one, Matthew Smellsberger, Semmelsberger, excuse me, went out there in his, uh, in the early prelims and knocked out Martin Sanyo Jr. in 15 seconds, just stroked him with a right hand. Didn't catch a piece of the bonuses. You had Jalen Turner go out there a couple fights later, choked out Euros Medic uh, with a nice rear naked choke in the first round. Didn't sniff the bonuses, right? Chris Dawkins had to knock Shamil Abdurakimov out twice in his fight to catch a bonus. Dan Hooker and Nasrat Hakrapast had a nice little fight. They didn't catch the bonus. You had to be uh, Marab Dushavili here with Marlon Moraes coming back from near death to catch a performance of the night bonus on this fight card. A lot of people, if this, you know, on a normal Saturday night, a lot of these people would have been picking up 50 extra G's this yep. time around. You had to do something very special. And Marab got dropped like on his face. Yeah, that looked like it was over. Yeah, he got left hooked almost to death in that opening round. And at first you're looking at him going, how is that guy still conscious? And then seconds later, you're going, wait a minute. Is he going to fuck around and win? Yeah. No way. There's just no way, man. I saw the, the clip from the corner of Marab Davashvili after round one, you know, where he's, he's out of the, the Longo Weidman team. So he's out there. He's got Matt Sarah, Ray Longo in his corner. And he comes back there, and they are hyped, man. They're just like, all right, it's your turn now, Marab. <laughs> it's your turn. And you could tell, I mean, Marlon Moraes thought that he was going to put him away there. He, he clipped on that left hook. The leg got stanky, and he was like, all right, here we go. Yeah. We're going home early. And he poured everything he had into finishing that fight. And then when Marab somehow survives it and then turns around and puts him on his back, you could see him just sort of look up at the ceiling, take a deep breath, and it was just like, oh, shit. Well, that didn't work out. Yeah. And then, you know, then you got to deal with that guy. You, you could just tell that at that point, he didn't have a whole lot left. And he was just incapable of further movement, it seemed, by the time Rob is just pounding away on the side of his head there. And, you know, some of those fights where you're watching, I mean, or like, like Chris Dachau's just all types of saliva coming out that man's mouth, yeah, Chad. Yeah, that was weird. It, that was that was more saliva that then was called for, frankly. <laughs> I don't Someone know. should tell that. Yeah. Tell that to him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had 
a, a great fight card just top to bottom here. And you're right what you said in the opening that this was as far from the just some fights approach as you can get. And it felt like, okay, the first time in a long time where you put together one of the old school kind of UFC pay-per-views where there's not necessarily any one fight that is doing all the work and bringing in all the, the pay-per-view buys like we tend to do with a Conor McGregor event these days. But in the aggregate, you have put together a just solid fight card all the way through that feels like good value for the money for a pay-per-view buyer. The It was the first fight card in a while where I've, you know, texted friends and been like, hey, if you want to watch the fights, they're worth watching tonight. Come on over to my house. I'm ordering the pay-per-view, you know, and had, had friends over to watch it. And it's just like, man, it, it reminds you, you can still do this when you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And here's one where we wanted to, and it really paid off. Like, you put together a fight card that looked good on paper. Everybody did kind of the stuff that they were supposed to do. Everybody gave you at least as good as you thought they were going to, if not better. Even the, a fight like Curtis Blades versus Jarzino Rosenstrike, people were getting to do their stuff. Yep. Even if you might not like what Curtis Blades' stuff is. Yep. Oh, we haven't even mentioned Jessica Andrade went out there in the uh, pay-per-view curtain jerker and, and stopped Cynthia Calvillo in the first round with a TKO. So like that's that was a nice performance as well. I was impressed. You know, we talked all last week about whether Dan Hooker and Nasrat Hakrapas were even going to make it to fight yeah. night. They both had visa issues. They got there at the last minute. They both made weight at the, at the lightweight limit. And then they had a pretty uh, entertaining fight that I think is is. Uh, it was more competitive than the 3027s and 3026 across the board would have you believe. They just like went out there, put on a nice fight. It just got swept up in the rest of this stuff uh, just because it was it was one of those nights where crazy stuff was going to happen. I mentioned earlier uh, Matthew Semmelsberger went out there with his 15-second win over Martin Sanyo. Uh, ben, this guy's got three fights in the UFC. He's three or uh, four fights in the UFC, excuse me. He's three and one overall. He was coming off a loss to Chaos Williams in this fight. But previous to that, his 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 most recent win over Jason Witt was a KO in 16 seconds. So uh, aside from looking resplendent with his goddamn <laughs> yes. hair and mustache combo, uh, Matthew Semmelsberger does not like to, to be out there for a long time. He's going to try to have a, a short night of work whenever he can do it, apparently. Well, did you see uh, Jalen Turner, mm -hmm. the tarantula? You mentioned his submission win there over Uros Medich. He mentioned to reporters, I believe, afterwards that in going through some hard times financially between fights, he had to sell a portion of his tarantula yeah, collection. had to sell some of his spiders. Man, I feel such a range of emotions at that. <laughs> because on one hand, I go, all right, this is another testament, I guess, to how poor fighter pay is for the UFC fighters. These guys are out there doing these incredible feats and aren't being rewarded appropriately. UFC's keeping all the money. It's a damn shame. Man's got to go sell some of his beloved spiders. And then I also go, wait a minute. How many fucking spiders do you have? And who are the buyers, man? What is it? Is this something? Are you posting it on Facebook Marketplace? How does that transaction happen? Like somebody is like, oh, hey, I'm going to go over to this guy's house and see about some spiders. I might buy some spiders from this person on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and bring them back to your house? Uh -huh. More going to purposefully bring more spiders into my house. I Jed, if you ever hear me talking about going to buy some spiders, 
you will know that I have something terrible planned for an enemy of mine. Yeah. It is not because I want to bring them home. Give them a nice home in my house. No. This shit crazy, man. But then you're also like, oh, damn, man. I had to sell us spiders. You think he's sad watching him go out the door? Like, oh, there goes little Ricky. Yeah, I bet. I mean, this is a guy whose nickname is the Tarantula. And he's out here selling off his namesake uh, from his home. I assume exclusively to other people whose nicknames are also the Tarantula. Yeah, there can't like there's no normal people who show up when you put out a call like I'm selling some spiders. There's anybody who responds to that should be put on a list. <laughs> yeah. The FBI should be watching those people just in case. In my imagination, you know? it's either other six foot three inch lightweights or it's a bunch of Alice Cooper looking motherfuckers coming by playing it cool, but you can tell how excited they are to uh to get all these damn spiders. What if they were, what if you, what if a guy showed up and you're like, Hey man, what are you going to do with these tarantulas? And he was like, Oh, I'm going to feed them to my even bigger spiders. <laughs> oh, I mean, I feel like at that point you are duty bound to be like, no, I can't support yeah, that. Not little Ricky. You ain't feeding nope. a little Ricky to a, a bigger spider. It's, it's not going down like that for a little Rick. We've, he and I have been through too yeah, much. He and I have been together for too long for that to happen. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Shad Rap, who writes, I, like many MMA fans, woke up Sunday morning after the latest UFC pay-per-view with one question. Is Aljamain Sterling trying to become a heel? And even if he isn't trying to, maybe he should? I assume he isn't trying to with neck surgery and this new, as of my Sunday morning reading, unknown injury. Those things alone I can have empathy with the guy about, but I'm not sure everyone will. Uh, so this appears to be more fallout, I think, from Aljamain Sterling's neck injury and the surgery that he had to have. Uh, right. He was booked to fight Peter Yawn in the rematch at UFC 267. That was going to be October 30th. It appeared we were finally going to uh, settle the score over who is the uh, the true men's bantamweight champion there. But, uh, of course, Aljamain Sterling is out. There was... Uh, some reports that he had not been cleared by UFC doctors. There were also reports out there from, and I believe Sterling himself coming out to say he was just having a hard time getting over the surgery, getting over the, the previous neck injury and getting back to, to training the way he wanted to. Uh, and luckily for us, we've got the co-main event podcast pile of trash neck correspondent with us live on the air yeah. right now. Ben folks, I assume this is one uh, that, that you literally feel with a nagging ache inside your body because you know a little something about what, what Aljamain Sterling is going through here. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had the surgery, so I don't know exactly what the experience after that is like. But I couldn't... It's not hard for me to imagine that maybe you have that surgery and you try to get right back into fight camp training to go defend a UFC title, and maybe you're not quite ready yet. That's that's easy for me to imagine. But you know what Shad Rap is getting at, yeah. which is that... Not not everybody's going to be cool about it when it's Aljamain Sterling doing it. Like, people are already... I was amazed when I was at uh, the the Conor McGregor UFC event in Vegas in July, and it was just... Like, they mentioned, I think at like a press conference event a couple days before the fight, they mentioned something like, oh, there's this fighter Q&A or, like, some kind of, like, autograph signing kind of thing, and here's people be there, and they mentioned Aljamain Sterling's name, and people were booing. And I was like, damn, Really? Like just he's just showing up to like sign some autographs, take some pictures for you guys. You guys are mad. Yeah, boo. Like, yeah, we hate so, that you're doing this service for us, giving up your so, time to make our dreams come true. Boo. It already seems like people are ready to hate on Aljamain Sterling, and then you know Peter Yan's not going to let him off the hook easy. 
talking about him pulling out of a fight and, and saying like he predicted it. But this is some serious stuff. And not only do you have to give yourself time to really deal with uh, an injury that serious and a surgery that serious and, and coming back from it, but you also know you're going into a tough-ass fight, man. Yeah. Like, if you show up not fully ready, not fully healed, and not fully prepared for this fight, and you get your ass beat by Peter Yan, who can beat your ass on the best of days. Peter Yan is a tough son of a bitch, man, and a good-ass fighter. And if you go in there when you're not ready and he beats you, nobody's going to want to hear it. Nobody's going to want to hear afterwards. You know what? I rushed back from this neck surgery because the UFC wanted me to fight on this date and I wanted to defend this title. Nobody is going to give a damn, man. So do what you need to do. As for Shad Rapp's suggestion that maybe he should just lean all the way into it, that you're not going to win over a lot of these people and just, just say, hey, fine, fuck it. I'll be the bad guy. It's not a it's not a terrible idea. The problem is that we sometimes suggest this for fighters like, hey, people hate you. Use that. And they go like, okay, but this is actually me, though. Like, I'm actually a person. Yeah. Like, I'm not out here playing a character. It's my real name, my real life. And people decided they hate me, which was kind of mystifying to me. And you want me just to, to lean into it and, you know add some fuel to that fire and maybe i don't want to because i just don't really want to admit that people hate me yeah i mean it's it's understandable initially here it was mma fans carrying on the grand tradition at getting mad at the wrong person uh because people were like immediately mad at aljamain sterling when what happened was that peter yan cheated so bad in the fight that they took his title away and gave it to aljamain sterling again like not really aljamain sterling's fault I don't know what you want the guy to do there besides be like, no, no, I I refuse to accept this title, which I don't think they yeah. would have let him do anyway. So they were mad at him for that. Uh, then he had to go get neck surgery because the neck is a pretty significant part of your body and it was injured yeah. in him. So he had to get that taken care of. I do understand the frustration at this point because it has felt like this rematch initially was uh, you know, a long time coming to try to get Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling back out there to see if we could come up with a definitive result here. So to have him pull out again uh, is disappointing and frustrating. But at the same time, like, man, you can't really be mad at Aljamain Sterling about it. Like, if his neck is still fucked up and he can't train or fight, I don't know what you want him to do. And it's not like Aljamain Sterling is engaging in a nefarious plot to keep the men's bantamweight championship forever. It's not like Aljamain Sterling is just like, well, if I just never fight again, uh, they have to let me keep the title forever. Yeah, and he's not making any money off of it right now, just having it sit around in a closet at his house. So, yeah, the the money is made in actually going and showing up and defending it. It will be an incredibly weird situation if we go through with an interim title, which is the plan at this point, and Peter Young emerges with it right like i saw i think ariel helwani had noted that like they want to do an interim title fight with with peter yan involved and i think Corey sandhagen was the front runner to to be in that fight but the deal was not done yet the last that i heard uh but like if peter yan loses the title due to cheating and then can't get back in there with aljamain sterling and then becomes the interim champion and then by the time we do get those guys back together it is a title unification bout between interim champion peter yan and undisputed champion asterix uh aljamain sterling because he is the most disputed undisputed champion they've got right now 
that's just a weird that's just a weird situation man that's a weird yeah. fight but wouldn't it feel like maybe one of the rare instances of that situation actually being what we kind of think of it in our heads that one guy is kind of the champ but the other guy is also kind of the champ you know like usually when we do the interim title bullshit and then have the title unification match it's it's entirely made up. We just invented one belt for another guy to fight over. But it's like, if Peter Jan were the guy to go and get the interim title, we'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, we do kind of still think of you as the champ, but also not 100%. And then Aljamain Sterling shows up with his belt, and we're saying the same thing to him. Mm-hmm. You know, We kind of think of you as the champ, but not totally. We do need you guys to fight it out to determine who is the actual champ. Like, yeah. It's like the... It, it's- it might actually be perfect. I, I mean, what I think is kind of hilarious is it's like... Corey Sandhagen goes in there, fights T.J. Dillashaw, loses. T.J. Dillashaw has to have surgery after it. Then this opportunity gonna just going to fall in his lap. And it's like, okay, so the outcomes of these fights just don't always necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Like, you lose, uh, a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere else, and then the next thing you know, you're in an interim title bout anyway. It is a good point that the situation that Dana White tried to make us believe was happening at heavyweight is actually legitimately maybe happening at men's bantamweight. So we could get into a... A situation where these guys have to fight over who is the the actual real champion. Uh, so I guess I'm down with that. It's it's a it's just a a frustrating situation. I imagine all Jermaine Sterling is probably the most frustrated person of all. So uh, yeah. maybe we slow our roll a little bit on the whole booing him all the time for stuff that's not his fault. In any case, uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. So uh, we apologize we didn't get through more questions here but we we felt like we needed to talk about the john jones situation so uh blame it on john jones i guess if you're mad um but if you if you have a question comment or concern you would like to air to the show in future weeks when we will answer more listener mail you know how to do it go to the website comainevent.com click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega had an absolute crackerjack in the main event of UFC 266. Volkanovsky emerges victorious, a successful title defense of his men's featherweight championship, but not before he had some fairly nervous moments against Brian Ortega uh, in the third round of this fight, especially when Ortega went, uh, attempted guillotine choke, uh, attempted darce choke, attempted triangle choke, and somehow... Volkanovsky survived all of those uh, to then continue his what had been, uh, you know, s- slightly dominant performance on the feet. He he gets the unanimous decision victory here. The first time since May of 2019 that Volkanovsky had fought someone not named Max Holloway. I want to ask you first about the champion here, because I guess he deserves it for getting the win. What did this performance prove to you about Alexander Volkanovsky that you didn't know before? And how do you think now of his, his prospects as champion moving forward? Chad, I still am not sure how that motherfucker didn't get choked. I don't understand it. I th- I was I sat there, I was watching the fight. When he got caught in that guillotine, I was like, ooh, 
he's in trouble. Yeah. You know, you see him kicking his legs. You see him struggling with that choke. And you're like, man, he's going to go out. We are seconds away from seeing Alexander Volkanovsky put the sleep on the canvas. Then he survives it. You know, one minute he's struggling mightily with this choke. And then the next minute he's giving the old thumbs up. Everything's cool down here. <laughs> Stuck on the bottom in a mounted guillotine. And he gets, he works his way out of that. And I'm like, oh, he's about to get darsed. No, didn't get darsed. And then the triangle gets sunk. And I'm like, well, that's it. Yeah. That's, that, it, that's Brian you know Ortega's move, man. Yep. That's why they that's say he's from some T city, man. And he had it, man. He had the whole thing sunk in. He, he loops under the leg. He, he brings him off over to the side and you're going, man, that's it. It's a wrap. Alexander Volkanovsky is for sure losing this belt. And he gets out of that. It was just like, what? How, man? How the fuck did you do that? Yeah. Afterwards, he was talking. They asked him, you know, how close is that choke? And he's like, well, it was, I'm about to lose this fucking belt choke. Like, that, that, that close. You know, like, he was gurgling, making weird noises and whatnot. And, man, it's just incredible from both those guys in different ways what they got through in order to keep going in that fight. Yeah. And, you know, like I saw, you know, Conor McGregor talking some shit on uh, Alexander Volkanovsky afterwards. And it's like, man, don't even act like you wouldn't have tapped five times in that fight. <laughs> You've never in your entire career shown the ability to get through some of the stuff that both these guys got through or to just, you know, end up in a bad spot, especially in a grappling exchange late in a grueling fight and get through it. Like you've never been able to do that. And this guy did it a couple times in one round. He's done it more in one round than you've done it in your entire career. And it's amazing to watch, man, especially because we knew after those Holloway fights that Alexander Volkanovsky is a guy, a smart fighter who can adjust on the fly, who can come out there, see what you're doing, and adjust to it as the fight is ongoing. And that's a really important quality, especially for a champion to have in a lot of those five-round fights. And here you just saw some just gritty ass toughness yeah. from Alexander Volkanovsky. You know, uh, I came away super impressed. And when they were talking afterwards, like, "Hey, is it time for people to put some respect on your name?" And I was like, "Who out there is not respecting him?" I mean, maybe Conor McGregor. Yeah. But other than that, shit, man, who who's coming away from a, just an absolutely fucking incredible fight like that and not not converted to a believer? in the champion Alexander Volkanovsky at this point. Yeah, I don't think that Volkanovsky was disrespected coming into this fight in any way, but I also think that this was the kind of win that he needed in this fight because those two Max Holloway fights had been close. By the You know, the second one could have gone either way. And in this one, you come away from it thinking, damn, Alexander Volkanovsky looks awfully hard to beat out there because uh, the game is just tight for Alexander Volkanovsky. Like, he's not going to uh, blow you away with a with a single strike knockout punch. He's probably not going to put you to sleep. But he's going to come out there, chip away with the leg kicks, with the body kicks. He's, he's going to be just very technically sound on the feet with his striking game. And then apparently if you take him down, uh, he's, he's just a, a zombie or an immortal of some kind because... Uh, Ortega, who is one of the most dangerous submission attack guys in the game, in the sport, couldn't couldn't get it, which is kind of remarkable uh, when you think about it that way. Like, that's T-City's whole thing, man, is that he loses the fight right up to the point where he jumps on your neck like a goddamn Wolverine, and then you're done. And, and it's just like uh, Volkanovski gutted it out and went on to, uh, to win the decision here. Um, 
Let's spare a few minutes to talk about Brian Ortega, because while he didn't emerge victorious here, like I still feel very impressed with what he has been able to do in terms of his evolution as a well-rounded MMA fighter. Like As we just talked about, this is a guy who came into the sport as a jiu-jitsu phenom and like would basically, if he got the opportunity to tap you out, could absolutely do it, even if you knew what was coming, but was maybe a little bit, uh, you know, uh, as unrefined on the feet. And in the last couple performances we've seen from him, despite the fact that he lost this one uh, to Volkanovski, this one was also a gritty performance for Brian Ortega and a performance where I think you saw uh, on the heels of the Chan Sung Jung victory that he had last October that you that, like Ortega's striking has come an awfully long way. Like just, just yeah. the fact that like you didn't beat the champion uh, at his own game, essentially uh, it should not be seen as a real detriment or drawback to Brian Ortega. Like that, that was a, as far as I was concerned, impressive performance on his side as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he was hurting Alexander Volkanovsky yeah. too. Like some of those punches, even like early on, he'd land a, a short shot that didn't look like a ton, but you could tell that the power was getting to, to Volkanovsky a little bit. The thing that I am amazed at is he went through such a grueling fight, took such a bad beating, uh, seemed exhausted and also just severely damaged. And then in the fifth round, which there was a part of me that didn't even understand how he even made it to round five. And then in the closing minutes of round five, he is still throwing punches that have snap on them. Yeah. He is not just out there just barely surviving. Like He was out there having arguably one of his better rounds of the fight in the fifth round while his face is blown up to twice its normal size. And he's out there stinging Volkanovsky yeah. with some of these punches. I, I could not believe that. Yeah. And he like, it's, it was just an amazing and inspiring feat of human endurance and stubborn ass toughness on Brian Ortega's part for him to still be there, still doing that, that late in that fight. Yeah. He passed the doctor's corner exam by the skin of his damn teeth a couple times in this fight and was still there at the end, uh, swanging and banging. So like that, I thought that was, that was pretty impressive. Although before we move on, I did want to highlight, there's a question that we didn't get to in our listener mailbag. This one from drugstore cop mm-hmm. who asked when it's all said and done, are we going to remember Brian Ortega in the same light as Alexander Gustafson, two fighters who would be champions in any other era, except the one they are currently in due to losses against the greatest in their respective divisions. Now with, Brian Ortega, it's not just that, that they're one guy holding it down forever and ever at the top of the division. He went up against Max Holloway, one of the greatest featherweights that we've seen in the sport, uh, took a bad beating in that fight, and then he comes in here against uh, Alexander Volkanovsky. You know, has a, a showing that I think does, even if he doesn't win, it does lift his stock in the eyes of a lot of people, I'm sure, but also takes a ton of damage in that one. You can't do, like, an endless number of those kind of fights. Yeah. And to come up against two incredibly good featherweight champions, come up short in two title fights like this, it does make you wonder, man, is like is his legacy going to be? He almost got there, didn't, and inspired us and amazed us with his ability to take a hellacious ass kicking. Yeah. I, because that's, that's not exactly what you want. I think it's a fair question to ask at this point. And those are a couple of tough draws if you're Brian Ortega to get Max Holloway and then seemingly Alexander Volkanovsky when he is just coming into the height of his powers. Uh, and those are Brian Ortega's career losses to this point are the Max Holloway and uh, uh, Volkanovsky fights. So 
yeah, man, that's that's a tough thing for him. I would also point out, though, like, he's only 30. He's about to turn 31 in February. So it's not like we're, we can close the book on Brian Ortega at this point. I agree with you that, like, you can't go on if every fight is going to be a five-round war where you just get the tar beat out of you, but that you're still in there and you lose, like, a competitive decision. Uh, but, like, the, the story of his career is not over yet. We don't know what will happen in the future. We don't know you know, what championship opportunities or lack thereof he will get moving forward. So I'm not totally ready to close the book. Uh, if Brian Ortega came out and retired tomorrow, then yeah, I think that would probably be the story of his career up to this point. But we just don't know what is going to happen. And to that end, like I would ask you, and this is an oversimplification, I think, on my part. But is Brian Ortega out there playing other people's games right now? Like uh, he did not even really try to get this thing to the ground until the later stages of the fight. And when he jumped on the guillotine choke, I think it was a, a it was like a slip, right? Or like a, a Volkanovsky like stumbled and went down or he got hit and he went down a little bit. He went down off a punch. I think it was a, a punch counter to a kick yeah. that put him down. So yeah. and it's, and it's, oftentimes the drawback of some of these jujitsu guys is that they don't have lights out takedowns. But like, would you like to see Brian Ortega be more of a grappler instead of going out there and like, I'm going to have a 25 minute kickboxing fight with Alexander Volkanovsky. And then if I get the opportunity, I will try the thing that I'm actually really, really good at. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, like you said, a lot of times with jujitsu guys, it's either you got to have good enough wrestling to get people down there where you want them, or you've got to have good enough striking that they want to get you down there and play that game. Uh, so, I don't know. I, he was good enough at this point at kind of everything yeah. that I don't see him as somebody who absolutely needs to get these fights to the ground and, and get them into a grappling context. But I I do think it's a little bit fair to wonder, like, okay, it was your plan to go out there and just out-kickbox Alexander Volkanovsky? Because if that was it, then then maybe that does need a second look. Yeah. No, I think, like I said, I think his evolution has been remarkable. I also think that maybe he would, uh, it would behoove him to have Joe Warren over there in his corner yelling, get your hands on him, Brian. He got his hands on him. Take him down, Brian. Grab a hold of him. In any case. Just could not choke the unchokable Alexander Volkanovsky. I don't think there's a neck there, man. I think that that's the thing. Just trying to choke a guy that's all traps and chin. (laughs) I mean, I've experienced that before. That is like a certain kind of nightmare. That guy's just not going to be choked easily. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, your dude Joe Rogan put out a video. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, really put some time into this one, it seems. And we're going to highlight that it's something produced by Samuel Rivera Films, which is, I don't know what that is. But somebody was really proud of this one. And basically, the whole thing is about how we need to defend the American values of freedom, mostly in regards to not making people get this life-saving vaccine. And there's a lot of interesting stuff we're doing with B-roll footage as Joe Rogan talks about how, you know, you can't let government leaders have this power to tell you basically to get a vaccine because then they're never going to give it up and they're going to abuse that power. Well, meanwhile, we see clips of like Nazi shit and stormtroopers in the street. Nice. Uh, when we, when he mentions freedom at one point, naturally we're going to see a B-roll clip of an Eagle in flight. That's, what, bald that's eagle. how you do it right there. That's a given. Um, 
One quote, we have to protect these freedoms at all costs, whether you agree with people's choices or not, because it is the foundation that this country was founded on. Anything that comes along that can inhibit your freedom is by definition anti-American. Which, I don't know man, I look around and see a lot of things that can inhibit people's freedoms. And uh, some of it just seems like living in a society. The part that really gets me though, is that at one point... It's part of like a little half-assed history lesson. Joe Rogan says, quote, Up until 1776, every fucking country that has ever existed was run by dictators. All of them. This was the first one where you had elected officials. This was the first experiment in self-government that actually worked. And it created the greatest superpower the world's ever known. The fuck are you talking about? Did Joe Rogan just claim that America invented democracy in 1776? Every other nation prior to 1776 in America was a dictatorship, according to Joe Rogan. Are you fucking kidding me, bro? Fucking kidding me. What the fuck are you talking about? Jesus Christ. The the, the freedom to just not get vaccinated has, has melted Joe Rogan's mind. Yeah. 1776. Fucking kidding me. We have evolved to a very weird definition of freedoms here in America. Freedoms, your freedoms do not mean, nor have they ever mean, that you get to walk around doing whatever the fuck you want, no matter how it impacts everyone else. It's not your freedoms, bro. That's not what that means. Anyway, on a slightly lighter note, Oscar De La Hoya took to Twitter this week, Ben. He went, hey, at Alex Volkanovsky, you just won a brutal battle for at UFC and made one twentieth of what you're worth. At Dana White, have some fucking respect for yourself and these fighters and pay these warriors what they deserve. Dana White hits the reply button. Okay. And he goes, STFU, you, capital letter U, crackhead. So shut the fuck up, you crackhead. Faking that you, the letter U, had COVID and robbing me of watching you the letter U, get KTFO by at Vitor Belfort. So whew, I got to think Vitor Belfort's mentions blew up. Like Vitor Belfort is probably sitting around the house picking up his phone. You have 8,000 mentions. <laughs> you should win an Academy Award for your hospital performance, says Dana White. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Like, I know you're heated. I know Oscar De La Hoya just hit you right where you live. Uh, some might say because his criticism was warranted, but yeah, like, and I don't hear any answer to that criticism. Yeah, it's, in, we're in just going to go with like the easiest, laziest thing. Like you made up the fact that you had COVID, and like went to a fake hospital soundstage to film yeah. a video of where you yeah. looked sick. Are he's you, accusing him of pulling a royal Tenenbaum, Chad? Yeah, are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me, dude? Come on! Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it. Go ahead. There is no doctor whatever at McClure General. That's what Dana White's saying. They're Tic Tacs. They're taking Tic Tacs. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad. In just slightly over two rounds, Nick Diaz threw 339 strikes, landed 150 of them. Robbie Lawler threw 221, 
landed 131 of them. So we're getting busy. Yeah. Out in this one. I mean, right off the bat, you watch Nick Diaz fight and you go, all right, his body, maybe some of that physically doesn't exactly look like the Nick Diaz as we remember him, but the style sure looks familiar. He's going out there. He's throwing like five, six, seven punch combos right off the bat. He's digging to the body. He's just doing a whole lot of work and landing, finding some openings, landing on Robbie Lawler. And yet, Robbie Lawler felt like a much more mature version than the last one Nick Diaz fought. Because he's in there, he's getting hit, but he's not freaking out. He's not getting into a wild brawl. He's staying disciplined, staying with what he does, and is digging back to the body, both with kicks and with punches. At times, looking like he's he's getting to Nick Diaz and he's bothering him. And when maybe when you're fighting a 38-year-old guy who hasn't fought in five, six years, and that guy asked for a change to the weight class the week of the bout, yeah. maybe that is the guy you want to test to the body just to see how he's doing there. And Robbie Lawler, though, finally starts getting to Nick Diaz, Puts him down, clocks him right on the schnoz there, and Nick Diaz just kind of says, all right, that's about it for me. I'm done here. A a solid win for Robbie Lawler, who looked good in this fight, but who also said that fighting Nick Diaz was a thing that got him excited again. And that's what he needed to give him a little bit of drive in the gym, is you know this bout got him hyped enough and interested enough to really get after it. Whereas, meanwhile, Nick Diaz... Seems like he still doesn't understand why he had to fight Robbie Lawler. Yeah. How'd you feel watching this one? Um, It wasn't a performance that made me sad in any way, which I think a lot of people were worried about from a 38-year-old Nick Diaz. Like, right. You definitely saw a 38-year-old looking Nick Diaz out there. But for the most part, I thought that he continued to possess many of the skills that he always made him successful in the past. Uh, and I think that Robbie Lawler, who obviously has been far more uh busy he's been uh, around fighting more often than Nick Diaz I thought came out with a very smart game plan and it seemed like his game plan was early on that you don't want to let the snowball that is the Diaz fighting style start to roll downhill because when that happens and they start to put that volume on you a lot of people just can't keep up and so it looked to me like Lawler's game plan was basically attack Diaz keep him moving backwards try to keep him from getting into that suffocating rhythm that can be the Diaz like volume striking style. And like clearly that that worked to some extent and to some extent Nick Diaz was still able to kind of get off with with a lot of his own offense. But the whole week last week leading up to this fight was in many ways a textbook Diaz performance and in other ways like kind of a strange Diaz performance. And I think that we saw a similar thing play out in the cage on fight night was that Diaz, as you said, had asked for a weight change the week of the fight, which in and of itself was not all that troubling. But the fact that it came so close to the fight, I thought, indicated that maybe there was a, an injury of some kind and that Diaz couldn't f- cut weight the way he normally does. Uh, and I think that he he looked like he was in shape to do to do his offense. He didn't look like he was in tremendous shape to get hit in the body by Robbie Lawler. And frankly, who is like who who wants to get hit in the body by Robbie Lawler? But the the way that the fight ended made me wonder, like, you know, Diaz, as you said, had made a bunch of comments leading up to the fight about how he didn't he didn't want to fight Robbie Lawler. He didn't know why he was fighting Robbie Lawler. And even in the post fight interview with Daniel Cormier, he was like, I don't know how this fight got made. Basically, I don't know why I'm here, essentially. 
and it was the ending at least was kind of that way to me that it kind of looked like Nick yeah. Diaz was just sort of like, I didn't want to do this anyway, man. And now I'm getting kicked in the liver and punched a bunch and maybe I broke my nose and you know what? I'm done for now. So it didn't make me sad, but at the same time, uh, it was a performance that I thought culminated what had been sort of a strange week. Yeah. You know, I joked on Twitter after the first round of that fight where I was like, man, it felt like Nick Diaz threw 200 punches in that round. Went and looked at the stats. He threw 176 significant strikes in that first round. Yeah, That's more than Jarzine Hirozen's strike and Curtis Blades threw combined <laughs> in their fight that came right before this one. So the two of them together over the course of three rounds didn't throw as many significant strikes as Nick Diaz threw in round one. And yet also, yeah, you know, he was talking afterwards like, hey, it's good to be back. I'm glad to keep fighting and all this kind of stuff. And I wondered, when you see him kind of end like that against Robbie Lawler after this sort of unusual fight week, what's your interest level to see Nick Diaz fight again in the UFC? I would watch him fight again if he if he wants to do it and he's motivated around it and maybe he can get in a a, a longer training camp. I feel, I feel like he had a pretty short training camp for this fight after a lot a lot of layoff. Uh, but I don't want to see him fight anyone that can seriously hurt him. Like he, I know he was talking crazy about how he wanted to fight Kamaru Usman leading up to this Robbie Lawler fight. I think we conclusively saw in this fight, uh, let's not get crazy. Like if yeah. you can find matchups for Nick Diaz that make sense. Uh, I remain interested in watching the guy fight because, like I said, it seemed like he still had the skills to to do what he does. There was just something weird about him this time, and I don't know if it was if it is just age or like if he was not as trained as he wanted to be, or if there was an injury, or if he just was not excited to fight Robbie Lawler. But like, there was something off about it, and uh, I feel like I would at least watch him fight one more time to see if I still felt like there was something strange about it or if it was just a one-time thing here against Robbie Lawler. Yeah, I mean, my concern would be if the next thing we see Nick Diaz book to do is fight one of these young hitters yeah, you, in the division. you don't want that. Then I'll go, okay, the UFC is doing that thing that they do where they're feeding the old to the young. I don't want to see that. I'd like to see more matchups along the lines of this Robbie Lawler, along the kinds of that thinking, at least. I just wonder how many of those there are for Nick Diaz, especially when you look around. Carlos Conduit just retired, man. Yeah. You know, there's fewer and fewer of those guys every day, it seems. I'm telling on myself here, but I have to admit, and you were, you said this last week, that if you get an arena full of people at this fighting event, that the two guys who have the most in common are probably Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I was like, I felt honestly and legitimately kind of emotional, like kind of choked up at the end of this thing when Robbie Lawler like immediately went across the cage and like had a moment of uh, like friendship and like shared experience with with Nick Diaz in the cage because like you don't see that a lot from Nick Diaz and you don't see a lot of outpouring of emotion from Robbie Lawler period ever and so like when these two guys were like what in many ways is the thing that happens at the end of every MMA fight. Uh, but when to see these guys kind of embrace and talk to each other and Nick Diaz gave him a kiss, uh, I was like, you know what? Like, that makes me feel I personally am getting a little emotional just watching these two absolute warriors like share this moment. Old Rob, as Nick Diaz put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they didn't want to fight each other, man. Like, they don't want to hurt each other. If I'm Robbie Lawler, I'm changing my nickname. No more ruthless Robbie Lawler. Now I'm old Rob. 
Uh, and I like Diaz was like he's cracking jokes in his uh, in his post fight interview with Daniel Cormier talking about how he didn't want to mess up the octagon too bad. Like I knew I was bleeding, I didn't want to make too big of a mess. So you don't see that stuff. Thoughtful. Huh? That's very considerate. All right. Well, that's gonna do it for round number two. Uh, we will be right back with round number three. I got suckered a little bit by the uh, stare downs here leading up to Valentina Shevchenko's fight against Lauren Murphy. Despite the fact that Lauren Murphy was a prohibitive betting underdog in this thing, I believe she came in at like plus 850, according to DraftKings, at fight time. I didn't expect Lauren Murphy to win, but when I saw them face off with each other during the pre-fight, Lauren Murphy looked like she could have a physical strength advantage against Valentina Shevchenko. I allowed myself to think for a moment. Maybe she will be able to do some stuff out there against Valentina Shevchenko. Come fight time, the opposite turned out to be true. In fact, in Lauren Murphy's own words, she said, quote, I couldn't do shit out there after it was over. Uh, and it seemed to me like Valentina Shevchenko cracked her with a check right hook in one of the first striking exchanges yeah. of this fight and marked Lauren Murphy up underneath the eye. And from that point forward, it just seemed like it made Lauren Murphy have to think too damn much while she was out there. She was worried about getting hit with that same punch every time she closed the distance and tried to engage. And frankly, she did get hit with that same punch a lot of times in this fight. Uh, and it seemed like she had, uh, like Valentina Shevchenko just invaded her head and planted a flag there very early on in this fight. And it just... It only exacerbated the physical and technical advantages that Valentina Shevchenko would have had anyway. And then after that, she just kind of ran away with it, leading to this uh, fourth round TKO stoppage. I don't know what you can even say at this point about Valentina Shevchenko, except that she's a lot better than everyone else. Yeah, well, and right away, not only... Was that initial check hook a very telling moment? Because you're right, it was very early on and it was Lauren Murphy's advance was halted immediately. And you could see on her face, okay, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. But just in those early initial exchanges, a major speed disparity showed itself. And you could see Valentina Shevchenko is just a lot quicker. Everything she does looks like it hurts. Yeah. She's not just throwing anything out there to test the distance or, or find the range. She Everything she throws out there is absolutely stinging. And anytime you come forward and try to push some offense against her, she's going to answer in a way where she's basically just reaching out and going, bap, stop doing that. Don't do that again. Yeah. And you can see Lauren Murphy being like, okay, shit, now what? What do you do after that? And her team in the corner trying to find some something good to tell her where they're like, you're doing well in the clinch. No, you're not. Like, but you're not doing as badly there as you're doing everywhere else, I guess, is the real thing that they're not saying. And it, you could kind of feel a little bit of their, like, they're trying to find something they can give her to, to send her back out there with for the next round. And what can you say? Yeah. Because it's just like, what, be better? Fight more skillfully? See if you can get a lot faster than you have been your entire life right now. Yeah. 
Because that's just not going to happen. And Valentina Shevchenko is just so far ahead. just doesn't have any real weaknesses that you can exploit. There's no area where she's weak that you can just be like, okay, if I can turn it into this kind of a fight, then maybe I've got a better chance. Like, No, she's just piecing you up on the feet, taking you down when she feels like it, when you get in too close, and then dominating you there on the ground. And then it's like... When she did land that one punch to kind of to the ear and wobble Lauren Murphy, and then it's just like in the blink of an eye, seven more strikes are just poured on on top of it, and you don't even have a chance to get your feet back under you. Yeah, I don't know what what you're supposed to do about that. I don't know how you solve a problem like that. Yeah, uh, it seems Valentina Shevchenko's vision out there is kind of amazing. Uh, on top of just being better than everyone else, she's so confident right now that she is going to see whatever you are doing and get out of the way of it and then hit you that it's 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 remarkable that she's just everything Lauren Murphy tried to do, she foiled it and then countered her and scored. And she's also just taking people down to dunk on them, man. Like she's taking people down because she can because she like like she did against Jessica Andrade, like she was wants to prove that she can do that too. And so she is, and she can, and it's amazing. It's, 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 she's just so far out ahead of everyone else that you feel like if she just stays home in this division and keeps fighting these people that we're going to have an Anderson Silva style, like a decade long streak for Valentina Shevchenko, because I don't even know who, who can uh, test her at this point. Well, yeah. And that's another question that we got in our mailbag here. Uh, was uh, from, well, from Gary Busey, good to hear from him, who said, imagine if Valentina and Amanda Nunes retired right now. Uh, to which I say, no, <laughs> no, I refuse to imagine it. Because yeah. it's the question goes on to be like, who fights for the belts? Who wins? Who takes over in that power vacuum? Who becomes champs? What do those fights look like? I don't know, man, especially after the way both of them have just decimated their divisions. And like Valentina Shevchenko, she wins this fight. Daniel Cormier, I think, gets in there afterwards. And he's like, you know, people are lining up to fight you. And I'm going, are they? (laughs) Are they? Are they lining up at the exit? And we're just confused that like all the rest of the women's flyweight contenders are like, get me out of here. I need need to leave. We already feel like we're just doing the thing of we're looking around and being like, all right, who's left? Who hasn't she already beat the shit out of? Can that person find two wins to rub together? If they can, fine. We got She wants to stay busy. She's very active as a champion. Throw somebody in there. Let let them take their best crack at it. And that's kind of felt like what we were doing with Lauren Murphy, where we were like, nobody out there seems like they really believe that she has a great chance to beat Valentina Shevchenko, but also nobody can come up with a reason why she shouldn't get to have her chance at it if she wants it. You know, she she put together wins in the division, all that stuff. There wasn't nobody else out there where they seemed like the obvious choice. And so he went, okay, fine. You, you, you can have your crack at it if you want. You might not want it once you get it, but sure, get in there and take your chance. And then after that, you know, complete domination. Now you look around at the division, you're going like, shit, I don't know, man. Like, who who wants this smoke? Mm. I, I don't know. Because I, if you're trying, if you're trying to put together a plan to fight Valentina Shevchenko right now, it's it's hard for me to see what you tell yourself you're going to do. The only thing I can think of is a two-on-one match against Daniel Cormier and Mackenzie Dern, where okay. maybe Cormier takes Shevchenko down, and then while he holds her there, Mackenzie Dern is able to do a submission of some kind. Okay. You know what? I mean, 
the Trillers would definitely be interested in something of this nature. We're doing it in Russia. Everyone's going to run around an obstacle course while it happens. And there might be a tiger or a giant mechanical scorpion. I don't know. We'll just, we'll see what we're able to pull off on fight night. Is it time to start talking about another fight with Amanda Nunes? Do you have to do that at some point? Maybe. I mean, maybe if they, they both seem like they're running out of other options right around the same time. Yeah. Like I can see the, the reasoning there that you go, okay, fine. We do this again, brother. But then it's like, what if Valentina Shevchenko were to win one of those? Like, are we then in a, in a series, in a, a prolonged series just to see who comes out on top? I don't know. Um, but it does seem like they are both nearing the point of having the same problem, which is that you just, you can't find anybody who seems like a challenge for them. The last time Valentina Shevchenko lost, period, was to Amanda Nunes in September of 2017. Her previous most recent loss was also to Amanda Nunes, UFC 196, in March of 2016. The last time and the only time in her professional career that she has lost to anyone else was September of 2010 against Liz Carmouche at Bantamweight. So that is a pretty impressive run for Valentina Shevchenko, who at this point... Uh, her victories cannot easily be counted. Nice. And so I don't know. I don't know what we do there aside from just continue to sacrifice bodies to her at that, at that weight class. All right. Uh, let's do just saying stuff. And, uh, and then we will get out of here for this week. And Ben, you know, I got to say it because this just hit the internet today. Tyron Woodley went and got the tattoo he got the tattoo that he said he was going to get on Ariel Hawani's last or show last week, the I Love Jake Paul tattoo. Now, uh, he got it on his middle finger, which seems yeah. uh, like maybe he thought he was being cute, but also like in a, a terribly painful place to get a tattoo. But this week, he posted the he posted the like Instagram picture of him like flipping off a camera with a picture of Jake Paul on it because. He'll never be in the same room with Jake Paul ever again. Uh, So he had to use the picture on his phone. This week, I'm just saying, no, Tyron, we told you not to do this, man. He's not giving you the rematch, dude. What about everything we know about Jake Paul would lead you to think if I get this tattoo, he will give me the rematch and not if I get this tattoo, he will laugh in my fucking face and call me a clown because he got me. He fucking got me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We all know where this is going. All of us except apparently Tyron Woodley. Did he really get the tattoo? Do you though? think it's a fake? If it's a fake, I take back everything I just said. Tyron Woodley is a genius. Maybe he'll get to fight Jake Paul again. If I was the tattoo artist, I would have been like, he's not going to fight you again, dude. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why he had to fake it because he couldn't find anybody willing to do it. Oh, they're like, look, in good conscience. I will do the I tattoo took, if I, you have the money, but he's not going to fight you again. That's what the tattoo I assume artists. that the, the tattoo artists have like a sort of do no harm, sort of like Hippocratic oath thing that they have to take. Because I look at that. It doesn't not look like somebody did a good job in pen. You know, it, it, that seems like a plausible explanation. Also... Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, you don't see any of the usual, like, redness around the skin that you typically would with a tattoo. Also, it would be awful if he actually did get that tattoo. Yeah. So, for those three reasons, I am choosing to believe <laughs> that that is just ballpoint pen. 
how about ain't nothing but ballpark playboy i could put a dolphin on your ankle or like a thing of barbed wire around your bicep anything but this man he's not he's not giving you the rematch what if i made like a bear like swiping with its claws and it looked like it was tearing the skin (laughs) and we could see the bear through the skin tears wouldn't that be a good idea come on how about i give you one of those but inside under the skin tears you're a machine in there Oh, shit. Yeah, now we got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about the lyrics to a David Bowie song? <laughs> you know? Why not, man? Yeah. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I think it's time for us to consider an alternative to the how many fingers am I holding up test. <laughs> okay. Because, as Alexander Volkanovsky put it, they're giving Brian Ortega these these test questions in between rounds, and it seems like he's getting them all wrong. We're asking him, how many fingers am I holding up? First of all, he doesn't even seem initially aware of where your hand is. We're going, hey, look over here. He looks in the wrong direction. He's just, you're trying to ask him if he can see, if he can continue to fight. How many fingers am I holding up? And it seems like we're going to give him a few cracks at it. Mm, yeah. Which... Is interesting because there's only so many potential answers to the question. Finite number. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's never zero. So you can take that one right out of there. I don't feel like anybody ever goes one either. Yeah. And they definitely, they don't do five. Yep. So right there, you're down to two, three, and four. It's almost always going to be two or three, I feel. So you almost got a 50-50 shot there. And it seems like we all kind of want to see these fights continue when we get in those moments. Nobody wants to be the guy to be like, nope, it's over. He he answered, I held up two fingers. He said three. I cannot in good conscience allow this to continue. That that doesn't really happen very often. We want in these situations to see the fights continue, to get, for him to give us just enough of a reason to send him back out there yeah. again. So we might ask him once. Maybe he says a number and we feel like, Mm, it's loud in here. I didn't hear it. Let me ask again. Maybe it's just, we have it in us. We have the resources. We have the collective brain power, I feel, to come up with some other kind of test. Because I feel like, how many fingers am I holding up? I mean, we're basically like living in a cartoon at that point. We're just, we're a bunch of damn cartoon characters, Chad. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, it seems pretty uh, low tech for 2021. Yeah. Just going in there. How many fingers am I holding up? Two. Yeah. See, I'd always guess two. I would start at two every time because I feel like I think it's like I think it's higher than 50%. I think it's like 60 40. You're going to get it right if you just start at two. Yeah. I mean, do you remember once? I can't remember who it was uh, who definitely could not see out of that eye and they tried to feel. (laughs) (laughs) They reached their hand up to try to feel the fingers. He was like, Okay, respect the heart to fight and to continue in this fight, but also that you're that's not what we're trying to find out here with this test, man. Yeah, respect the hustle, but uh <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh this weekend we got dueling events again, I believe. You got the UFC uh has got the Tiago Santos Santos versus Johnny Walker. Uh, main event, which is going to be just a slobber knocker, a real fucking barn burner at light heavyweight. Also, we didn't mention this, uh, but Chris Dacus, who went out there this week and knocked a dude out twice and has the My Brother's Keeper tattoo across his chest, 
His brother, Kyle, is fighting Kevin Holland in the co-main of this upcoming UFC event. That's going to be uh, October 2nd. That'll be at the Apex. And Bellator has an event, Bellator UFC 267, uh, Lima versus MVP, MVP. the rematch. Yeah. That's going to be Friday, October 1st. So that's actually a good one. And uh, they've also got uh, Leah McCourt is on that fight card as well so if you got your friday free you might want to check that out um thanks everybody for listening again we'll be over at the patreon all week wednesday live chat friday power hour check us out over there patreon.com slash co-main event as for right now though we're done we're through we're out i like I actually like your idea of at least incorporating either zero or five. And once in a while, just to throw a curveball, man. Just to give him a curveball.